in my uh, two uh, two months and three days or whatever of being in office, I've been sworn in four times. You've been sworn. That's a lot of swearing. This is Hourglass, the podcast for United Way of King County in Seattle. Up next, James Lovell tells us how he spends his time serving communities as Chief Community Development Director of the Chief Seattle Club and as a newly elected member of SeaTac City Council. I'm your host, Joe Burris. Thanks for tuning in. Ever notice how in recent years we don't find out the final election results on Election Day? Often, we must wait for days before discovering whether our candidate of choice is won. And if you think it's bad for us, imagine being the candidate. Just ask James Lowell. During the last November elections, he jumped out to an early lead in the race for SeaTac City Council Position 5, only to fall behind days later. Ultimately, James retook the lead and never looked back. He now serves on a council that governs a town of 32,000 people and serves Seattle-Tacoma International Airport. Many folks know James for his work at Chief Seattle Club, an indigenous-led housing and human services agency. James oversees the development of resources for the club, including fundraising, grant writing, and policy and advocacy work. James also leads the club's communications work and its all-all cafe. Chief Seattle Club is a member of United Way's Indigenous Communities Fund, which United Way launched in 2020 to provide Indigenous communities with resources to address COVID-19's impact. Recently, we caught up with James for a sit-down about his work at Chief Seattle Club and on SeaTac City Council. Though he's been involved with the latter for only a few months, James says his tenure has been quite eventful. By way of introduction, I'll share with folks, yes, James Lovell, uh, and my, my full-time job is with the Chief Seattle Club. I'm the Chief Community Development Officer there. Uh, I'm enrolled in the Turtle Mountain Band of Chippewa Indians from Belcourt, North Dakota, born and raised here in Seattle and, and have lived in King County my whole life. I uh, moved to SeaTac uh, 14 years ago and uh, took office on November 28th. So the election was, what was it, November 7th? Mm-hmm. Uh, was election day and um, started out a little bit above and then the next day dropped below in votes and it took a couple days but then got far enough ahead that uh felt pretty confident um that i was gonna win so the city staff reached out and they said hey we'd uh we'd like you to come get sworn in uh and i said well uh, should we maybe wait until the election is certified and they said well absolutely but here's the thing the election is certified on november 28th and the city council meeting that we need you at is November 28th. So the election gets certified at, it's like 4.15 or something. And I'll, now the only reason I'm even being considered for for being sworn in in November instead of January when you typically take office right, from right, a November right. election is, um, so I, about a week before the election, uh, there's two of us who have been running our races, our respective races for, for months at this point in time. And there's right. someone in position five already, and he only has a few months left. Um, and for uh, for whatever reasons, you know, he had to uh, resign from city council. Now, this cap comes like a week before the election. And we're in a low information city where we don't have things like the Seattle Times or The Stranger or really anyone covering um, the election really closely. We don't have debates or anything. So we're in a pretty low information zone as far as publicly available information about politics and candidates. 
So I can't, I have no idea what my, my opponent's mind was, was thinking, but I was like, well, what does this mean now that, uh, this person has dropped out of the race because it's, or not, not out of the race. Sorry. He wasn't running. He's right, resigned. Right. So the city council goes from seven elected down to six. Okay. And so, you know, I'm, my mind was racing in, in late October, early November is like, are, are they going to appoint someone who will sit in this seat for like three, four meetings and then let, let the, the, the victor from the election take over. And, uh, apparently CTAC policy is that you just let it sit until the general election is complete and certified. And then whoever it is that was the winner takes office early. So November 28th, right? Three weeks after election day. They certify the election at 4.13 p.m. or something like that. Mm -hmm. Within an hour, I'm standing in front of the city attorney, the city clerk, uh, doing kind of the the back office legally binding oath of office. Uh, An hour later or something, like 6.12 p.m. uh, on the first day, I'm a city council person. They do the public swearing in in front of, you know, this is where the public is available to come in and, and watch and celebrate. Um, you know, there, mind you, there are three other people who had just won their election for SeaTac City Council as well, but oh, well. they aren't doing this because they weren't. They, the two of them were already elected, and right. one was elected to a position that wasn't wasn't immediately vacated right, or, right. or vacated just before the election. So I get sworn in, and then I get sworn in, and then we have two or three meetings, um, and then uh, City Council ends for 2023. And December 26th, the day after Christmas Day, which we celebrate in our house, the day after Christmas Day, uh, we come in for the legal swearing in again. Because now I'm the first swearing in was to finish the previous term, the previous term. OK, so now we're getting forward with my actual four year term. So we do the legal swearing in November, uh, December 26th and I get sworn in again on January 9th in the public ceremony oh, that goodness. friends and family uh, come into. So in my uh, two uh, two months and three days or whatever of being in office, I've been sworn in four times. You've been sworn. That's a lot of swearing. Yeah. Well, I, and I swear a lot in my daily life, which I've <laughs> got to work on as well. But um, this is what's, so when you ask, you know, what has life been like for you after taking the oath of office? Like, come on, Joe, give, give me a choice of which oh, one. My Between two oaths, it was an hour, another, another two oaths. And then you wait three weeks, take some more oaths. By the end of it, here's the good news. I've been sworn in four times. I'm probably as good as anyone has ever been at the city of SeaTac at reading the recitals for the oath <laughs> of office uh, from the rapid fire swearing in. Life has been amazing. Mm-hmm. I I had an incredible 2023. Um, the, the campaign reminded me uh, why I care about system change, why I care about things like the United Way, people who stay at it and do collective impact work, why I care about individuals. Um, the, the election is reminding why I care about the power of individuals, individual leaders, folks who decide to run for office, folks who know uh, they'll never run for office and still lead from behind. Um, I got so much incredible support during the campaign. Um, and it's not just that folks supported uh, a run for office. They supported having another elected official who was informed by the community who uh, so far is trying to be accountable to the community. And, and I think I've done it so far. It's been a little easier because I've only had a couple of meetings. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's been a, a pretty, uh, it's been fast paced because of all the swearing ins. We got committee assignments. So now I know, okay. in addition to my full time job at okay. Chief Seattle Club, mm-hmm. one of the most amazing nonprofits who have ever existed. Right. I also serve on the board of uh, RVC, formerly Rainier Valley Corps. Oh, okay. Um, I'm the board president this year now. Uh, and I'm on the board for the Alliance for Pioneer Square. 
Um, so, so trying to do as much uh, to to keep the the places and the people and the communities I care about centered. I'm also on the Planning and Economic Development Committee, where I'm the new chair for that committee for the city of SeaTac. Okay. Uh, and I'm also on Transportation and Public Works. And so those are um, Transportation and Public Works is uh, feels I, I feel ready for that because during a campaign, if you've ever run for office, you'll know this. Or if you've ever door knocked for someone running for office, you hear a lot about sidewalks. You hear a lot about transportation. You hear a lot about public works. Um, and it speaks to day to day. People are going to talk to you about the things that make every day difficult, as opposed to every six months. There's some big, you know, political issue. It, folks really care about day to day. I care about day to day, so I'm really ready for that committee. Planning and economic development is one um, that you know I, I was really hoping for because uh, a lot of what we do in the nonprofit sector, mm-hmm. right, is we are planning. A lot of folks think we're responding to the, the the ills of society, but especially on the fundraising side, we are planning, you know, how can we keep this organization financed? How can we support our leadership, our board, our executive director? Um, what are the kinds of grants and structures our organization needs to take over the next 10 years? How can we serve our program team? Uh, so it's all about planning mm-hmm. and, and financing and then economic development for the city of SeaTac. We're, you know, we're at a really rich part of the city's history. We've got a pretty solid relationship uh, with our businesses, many of which are oriented around the port, uh, the, the airport in the SeaTac. So we have a really large hotel footprint, lots of, of amazing small businesses that are, are going to feature uh, more prominently than they have in the past, I think, because of the age of the city. We're, we're now 30. We're founded in 1990 or 91. So we're 30-some years old. And really ready to take off as uh, this expansion of strong partnership with the airport in the Port of Seattle, strong partnership with the rest of South King County. Uh, and let's figure out what the economic uh, future of SeaTac looks like uh, beyond being a, a, a through point for other places, because it's really an incredible uh, city. You um, are, and, and the Chief Seattle Club has just done remarkable work along the lines of addressing the issue of homelessness in this city. And so I wanted you to, because we, we've done a lot of work with you, but I want, but I want you to just, just talk about you know, just how Chief Seattle Club has, has, has taken steps to address that. So I'm going to uh, shift hats here then. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm kind of setting aside James yeah, Lovell, SeaTac City Council That's member right. of Position 5, sworn in four times four, in four times 38 sworn. days or something like four that. Four times sworn. Um, so I've been at Chief Seattle Club for about three years, just under three years. And my family grew up uh, here in town, a lot of uh, family coming in and out. And, you know, uh, Native people are very disrepresented, overrepresented in a disproportionality um, mm-hmm. is staggering in mm-hmm. homelessness. Mm-hmm. Um, in in the 50s, Native people were relocated uh, somewhat forcibly, you know, kind of like uh, false incentives and promises. If you leave the reservation and come to the cities, you'll have housing and education and health care and all these things. So folks travel like my my mom and her family travel, um, you know, 1500 miles to Seattle uh, they actually relocated initially to Tacoma, okay. um, but they travel to these urban centers far from their reservations where there's Indian health service and, and tribal housing. Um, and oftentimes the uh, the resources were just never materialized. Not oftentimes. Very rarely did re- resources materialize. Right. So organizations like the American Indian Women's Service League, um, you know, really those women really set the, the stage for what uh, – 
this kind of, it's not pan-Indian, but what like urban Indian identity would look like where we, we work together, we help, uh, we, we hold on to the things that make us unique, beautiful tribes, but we still work together on behalf of all native people. Right. And that's around the time that uh, 1970 was actually, uh, and if my data is correct, uh, which would be a first, I think March of 1970 was when the United Indians of All Tribes Foundation, the Chief Seattle Club, and the Seattle Indian Health Board were all founded in that same month of the same year. Um, and, uh, so it's really, you know, it's, it's the, it's the mass migration in the fifties and the sixties that got native people to urban centers far from resources. It was the mobilizing by American Indian women who uh, laid the, the foundations, uh, that other leaders were able to take and move forward. And the club wasn't really the biggest of these organizations. I call them the 1970s. I don't think anybody else calls them that. Um, we weren't the biggest of the 1970s. Um, we were really, uh, you know, we were founded actually by the Catholic Church. Uh, we uh-huh. became our own nonprofit, but um, a lot of our members were, they were getting some services and the club was at sometimes very much mobile where it was handing sandwiches outside, out the back of a van. Right. Our day center would be, you know, there'd be a program that opened at nine o'clock. And so we'd get the space from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m., but we'd have to close down and, and tell people to move on at that time. We got our own day center in 2004, but then remodeling and everything, I think 2000, 2006 is when our day center opened uh, in Pioneer Square, uh, just south of the Smith Tower. <clears throat> Stayed that way for a long time. And 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 leadership at Chief Seattle Club, our executive director, uh, Derek Belgard, and our previous executive director, Colleen Echohawk, they really uh, set the vision for what this could look like for the club and our board, right? And said, we are going to, we're going to do our own housing. Native people were not staying in other housing. Our housing team could get them into units and apartments, but it's a lonely world for Native people. And it's hard for Native people to uh, be the, the one out of 150 people in a building. And there's a lot of, it's a lot of ostracizing and weird pariah stuff that happens with Native people, um, especially ones who, uh, you know, I, I'm always careful with how they say this. I'm Native. I'm enrolled. I'm really proud of that. I'm also white presenting and I'm male. So I, I walk through the world with a heck of a lot of privilege. Not all Native people had that, actually relatively few. And so uh, Native people, as we know, uh, skin color is, has, uh, people treat people with darker skin really badly. Tell me about um, Throughout all of history, yeah, I'm preaching to the choir. Um, but it's really hard on our Native homeless folks, particularly. There's all these visible things that make them uh, stand out. And so it's really tough. So they weren't staying in other people's buildings. There was no culturally responsive approach to their recovery, to their trauma, to all the things that made um, made their coping mechanisms uh, necessary. Oftentimes that was alcohol and drugs. And so the club knew that we are the place where we can do this. So we we built a vision to build housing and we opened our first building mm-hmm. called All All in January of 2022, mm-hmm. right at the end of 20 of, of January. Um, 80 units and it's permanent supportive housing. So it's 24-7. We have staff there 24-7. We have case managers for the staff. We have program managers uh, for the building. They oversee everything in the building. We also have launched a traditional mental health worker model where these are not licensed clinical um, mental health workers. These are lay counselors who are Native people with a real deep background in Native culture and traditions. These are folks who have gone to their ceremonies their whole lives, folks who have fought through a lot of the challenges it takes to hold on to a culture that was uh, illegal in many ways and shapes, right? Native American Religious Freedom Act was 1978. Parts of our religion were illegal up until 78. Um, Our arts and crafts were not uh, 
ours until 1990 with the American Indian Arts and Crafts Act. I'm probably getting the title wrong on that. Other people could make native art and say, this is a Clinkett piece. This is an Ojibwe piece, even if the, the artist was not that way. And it's not a perfect um it's not a perfect uh, uh, act. None of these are perfect acts, but they've given us places to start the conversation. So since our identity was effectively illegal, it's taken this kind of work to bring it back, which is uh, traditional mental health workers who bring culture, who bring language, who bring drumming and singing and, and medicine and storytelling and coffee conversations and bingo nights, you know, all these things that make people feel whole and and seen. Um, and that's why people... Uh, do better. Native people do better at Chief Seattle Club, whether it's our shelters. We have two transitional shelters open right now. Um, we have our first building, All All, which is a Lachute seed word for home. Um, <clears throat> that was a, a kind of traditional capital campaign where, where low-income housing tax credits funded a big portion of it. This incredible group of, of individual donors uh, and, and foundations funded a huge part of it. And our public partners came in and supported a lot of it. We've got some vouchers that help us keep running the building, the Department of Commerce, the Office of Housing. A lot of folks are coming in to help us run it because it's it's like a couple million dollars a year to run a building like this. I don't, mm-hmm. I, I don't. There's no hyperbole in that. It's right. millions of dollars a year right. to run a building like that because of the intensity of the trauma that society put on a lot of Native people and the coping mechanisms that kept people alive for so long, and the long-term damage that those things do to your mental health. Um, and these are not, these aren't like rehabilitation housing where someone's going to come in they're going to recover in 20 minutes and get a job and get out of there and go own their own house or apartment. It's permanent supportive housing. We don't expect these people to leave. So we got that building open. <clears throat> and before that building was even open, we were, we were, you know, halfway there to opening our second building and that we'd, we'd gotten the funding to do a rapid acquisition, not a capital campaign, a rapid acquisition where one of our public partners, who over time, public partners have been great, but it's taken a lot of policy and advocacy work advocating that uh, if you wait for nonprofits to do capital campaigns and build housing that meets the needs of our people, we're never going to solve this. We need the public system to come in. Yeah. So the public system, um, these are these are just phenomenal programs, right? There's Health Through Housing in King County. The Office of Housing has used Jumpstart funding. The state of Washington has done great work with this. These, these funding streams can help to identify and and purchase buildings that are already built, market rate buildings, and then we convert them to be safe for permanent supportive housing. And I want to say that again, when a market rate building is built, it is not safe for permanent supportive housing. It doesn't always have cameras, but it doesn't have the spaces for staff to be there 24-7. It doesn't have safe access points. It doesn't have the kind of controls you want to really care for people, the kinds of boundaries that show up when you really love someone and want to take care of them. So, so our tenants still have, they have a lease and they're, they're, they're quote, technically renters. They have all the, the free, the freedoms that are granted and the rights that are granted under the fair housing and everything. But we try to be there every step of the way to put the right kinds of supports in place, whether that's boundaries or, or opt-in services. Um, and so our second building opened in, um, last year, we opened two buildings. One was called Goldfinch, which was through Office of Housing Support and State of Washington Support. Uh, and that's on Fremont, and it's 63 units of permanent supportive housing for elders, 55 and up. Okay. And then the third building was Salmonberry Lofts, which had been built um, as the Canton Lofts, and we renamed it to Salmonberry Lofts in honor of Peter Joe, who's a, a DSHS worker um, in the region for a long time, native guy, um, through the Health Through Housing uh, funding from King County. Great partnership there. Um, and we've got 76 units there, permanent supportive housing. And that's where my oldest brother lives now to this day. He, he came in through our shelters. He'd been on the streets for a long time. Real heavy usage. 
um, was not confident that he would survive and make it to 50, which he did back in June. Mm. Um, but he needed the time at our transitional shelter where there was a curfew and where there were some supports we could actually like get to him and, and require him to use okay. to stabilize and to get to the point that when he comes to see me, he's not just asking for money. He's asking for how, how am I doing? How can we hang out? How can we spend time together? Because that's what it had been. For, for years with him and I did everything I could, but I knew I wasn't qualified and didn't have the, the, the kind of scale of supports to help him. Um, so Chief Seattle Club has made this space where Native people who have got these longstanding traumas and recuperation from trauma challenges have a space where they can transition into permanent supportive housing. Our next building is opening in um, spring. Okay. Uh, it's 120 units. It's up on Lake City Way, just south of city limits, in city limits, but but not just on our side. That one is supported uh, again by all the the major public players. It's going to be operational support is from King County, the uh, building support is from Office of Housing and, and King County and the state. I mean, everyone's been helping on all these. And um, the uh, 120 units of permanent supportive housing, you have a bigger footprint right. up in Lake City Way, and so we can actually have a a, a bit more of a, an even better and more responsive approach than our other buildings are always able to have. When a building is already built, there's very little you can do to the, the building envelope, the outside. You can't you can't really add, you know, a, an, an atrium or a lobby for uh, connecting with people as they're coming in and out. You've got to use the spaces inside. <clears throat> um, you also don't want to cannibalize a bunch of units to turn them into offices or too many units because <clears throat> then that's less housing. Great. So... There's this balance of how many, how much space can we do this with in a, in a building that was already built, not to our specifications. This building, Sacred Medicine House, was built to our specifications with a larger footprint than we had available uh, with all all over mm-hmm. over here. Mm-hmm. Um, it's going to be our largest and kind of most responsibly designed for permanent supportive housing, um, and it's going to be the same thing: permanent supportive housing. Right? This is this is the tool that we know works. And this is this is really our executive director, Derek who has built this model we bring folks or, or built out the the how we describe the model and how we operate the model is you bring folks to the day center that's where things everything starts um and those are the folks who are still literally unsheltered often and then we work with them to get into our shelters and from the shelters we get the transit the stabilization and the transitional supports so that permanent supportive housing can be most effective okay we have not uh seen convincing evidence for our housing that pulling someone immediately from the street into our housing has the best outcomes. Yeah. And it, it is sometimes needed because we need to get people off the street. Right. But if, if we have enough shelter beds, that six week to six month transitional period is where the initial stabilization goes that lets PSH really amplify someone's stability and recovery. They can be native. They can be, uh, they can just be amongst community and, and work with the, the traditional mental health worker, be a part of the social programs we have. So four buildings open and many more to come. Because I think when people are saying, I, I do really think people, when they say it's it's rough out there, yes, they're talking about property damage. They're talking about the, the visible things that make them uncomfortable. But I do think people know that, that what they're really saying is it's rough on other people out there and they're behaving in a certain way right. that we've kind of painted folks into a corner right. by shutting down every mental health institution we can, by defunding um, you know, the, 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 a lot of the preventative measures that really ought to be there in society um, and things that we've had and have had success with in the past, but then the temperature changes on something. Yes. COVID was obviously, you know, that's a little harder to pinpoint the um 
the scale of change and and the kind of it, it made every my experience my thought is i think covid made all the social ills of society even more sensitive to kind of hitting the tipping point where they become a crisis so things that were already a crisis were daylighted daylit yeah. as a crisis things that were almost at crisis sort of became a crisis exactly the Chief Seattle Club was one of four organizations that received the first $1 million of United Way's Indigenous Communities Fund for COVID-19 relief. Along with United Indians of All Tribes Foundation, the Seattle Indian Health Board, and Mother Earth. Those funds covered critical staffing needs for COVID-19 relief efforts and helped open a 66-room temporary hotel shelter. Yet James reminds us that while the pandemic has passed, the tragedies it brought and the disparities it amplified are still being felt. And COVID, uh, we lost too many lives. We lost mm-hmm. too many BIPOC lives. We we denied too many people. We are still denying too many people the rights to kind of health and safety. But uh, I do see that we can turn this around. And I do think that people still believe in humanity and they're frustrated when the only thing they can point at is property damage as a way to say, I wish our system was doing better. And they, they wring their hands and say mental health and substance use, right. not knowing that they can also uh, uh, write a check or or fill in a ballot or propose, propose a measure to mm-hmm. your city, whether it's a big city or a small city, mm-hmm. to take something on, to study something. Go get those signatures because you can we can make some change in five years. Um, I'm not saying it has to be all in. I mean, we can, you know, a, a small group of determined folks can do this, I think. Perfect. That is uh, James Oval, uh, four time sworn in SeaTac, uh, <laughs> uh, member of a SeaTac Council and a Chief Seattle Club. Uh, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. Always fantastic to talk to you. United Way of King County partners with local organizations to keep our neighbors housed through rental assistance. Those partners include Urban League of Metropolitan Seattle, who say that access to safe, habitable, and affordable housing is more than a basic need. It is a human right. Urban League Housing and Financial Empowerment Department offers a wide range of programs and services designed to address housing needs, financial literacy barriers, and access to basic economic resources in low-income and otherwise vulnerable communities. The Urban League serves as a liaison between United Way and the community to prevent eviction and homelessness by providing emergency rental assistance for families that meet United Way eligibility requirements. For more information, log on to urbanleague.org housing. And be sure to join us for our happy hour and hellos event at Cherry Street Coffee House on March 7th from 5.30 p.m. to 7 p.m. Network with like-minded professionals, bid on some exciting prizes to benefit food insecurity, and take action in the community. For more information, log on to uwkc.org slash event slash Cherry Street. At United Way of King County, we are working side-by-side with communities to build an equitable future for everyone. Hourglass United Way is a podcast that highlights how we and our partners spend time making a difference in our communities. Our work is made possible by the generous donations from people like you. Please send comments and suggestions about our podcast to hourglassunitedway at gmail.com.
To learn more about our work or to support United Way, log on to uwkc.org. I'm your host, Joe Burris. Thanks for listening. Until next time.